the Gidite and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God had gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep commandments and the Lord that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience in him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their homes, to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given them land in Bashan, and to the other half of the tribe, Joshua gave land to the western side of the Jordan along with the fellow Israelite. When Joshua sent them home, he blesses them, saying, Return to your home with your great wealth, with large herd of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and great quantity of clothing, and divide the plunders from your enemies with your fellow Israelite. So the Reubenite, the Gedi, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelite in Shiloh in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to Jeliloth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenite, the Gedi, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Jeliloth near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to the war against them. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribe of Israel, each the head of the family division among the Israelite clan. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord say, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourself an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of payout enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even through the plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourself other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one to die for his sin. Then Reuben Gad and half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the head of the clan of Israel, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel know, if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us to this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, What do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You, Reubenite and Gedite, you have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offering or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offering, sacrifices, and fellowship offering. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in our Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar which our ancestor built, not for burnt offering and sacrifices, but as witness between us and you. 
far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, and sacrifices, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stand before his tabernacle. When Phineas the priest and the leaders of the community, the head of the clan of Israelite, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with Reubenites and Gadites in Gilead, and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praise God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenite and the Gadite gave the altar to this name, a witness between us, that the Lord is God. This is the word of the Lord. No. Morning, everyone. Morning. Thank you, lowly servant. Notice the shades outside. You have now if you didn't before. Cole Hood has been in hospital and is out of hospital. He's not with us this morning, but trust that he's doing well. Nola Hodgson is having a birthday today. 92. She's here with us this morning. Sharon is with us, as you have heard, still with a cloud hanging over her head about what's going on for her. Jo L continues treatment, the little four-year-old girl. Sienna has uh, gone home and is doing well, but will have face future treatment. Micah, Graham and Liz Anderson's grandson, is out of hospital in Nambour, has gone home, which is good, but is not good that he is facing a mystery and a life-threatening illness. So please continue to pray for Micah and for the family, for Graham and for Liz. Pastor Alvin had a hospital, was in hospital this week with an operation and Sherry had one, I think, a couple of weeks ago. So both of them are home recovering. Pastor David, I don't think, is with us this morning. He's away at the BLT. Uh, he was one of the speakers there. The BLT stands for Brisbane Leadership Training. And you saw on the notice book, on the screens about there is an anniversary on... Uh, when was it? Um, <laughs> what time? 9.40. Who said 9.40? Smack them. 9.30. You better be here early because the place will be full. And if you want a back seat, you better get here early. <laughs> and before the, the anniversary, there is a, a working bee, an opportunity for us to come and fix things clean things and have fun and fellowship together on 27th. Tonight there is a, <coughs> excuse me, uh, uh, Tom Ford is getting baptised, so that'll be fun, by his dad. And you'll see in the bulletin too there is two notes about, one from Rian and one from Daniel, uh, both uh, trying to do something to minister to people, particularly those in East Africa suffering from severe famine. Uh, Rian, is Rian with us this morning? I wasn't sure if she was going to be here or not. I asked her to send a picture before and after. She goes to our night service. She was baptised a couple of months ago. And uh, Rianne is moved 
that she wants to do something. And as you read in the bulletin, she's, having, she's shaving her hair off um, and with a view to raising money. So if you would like to contribute to that, you can do that through our church office. And Daniel Kievers, who is a uh, growing, developing young disciple of the Lord Jesus, who is very passionate about serving him, is engaged in an extreme world vision famine. Uh, and you can read about that in there. They're not just going off food, they're doing all other sorts of extreme measures to draw attention to poverty in the world and them having an experience of it. So there are many things going on for people around us and you're probably aware as well that there are folk who are not well and <clears throat> Rhonda's not with me today, she's come down with something so please pray for me to be patient. I got home yesterday from a couple of meetings here at the church and I found her wrapped up with a blanket and she was like a little frog. She was freezing cold. So I don't know what disease that woman is carrying, but she's not well. So I told her to stay home and to recover, not to come and share it. And I don't think she'd be alone. There'd be others that have got this dreadful virus or whatever it is that's going around. Um, But please pray for her to recover. I asked her to stay home on Monday if she's not better today, but she won't. So pray that she's either well enough to go to school or that she'll make a sensible choice of just recovering and getting over this awful thing. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are with us this morning by your spirit and that you've been listening to the songs that we have sung, to the way our hearts have connected or not. And you're listening now. Lord, you've heard every word that I've mentioned. You've heard every name. And we love each of these people, and we know you do, and we commit them to you. Lord, we ask for ongoing healing, for Cole, for Alvin, for Sharon, um, for Siana, Joel, for Micah. Grateful, Lord, that he's out of hospital. Uh, but worried and scared about that boy's future. So we ask that you might intervene in his life. So too for little Joel. And then, Lord, for Alvin and Cherry, for Sharon, likewise, that you might touch them and heal them. And for Rhonda as well, Lord, help her to cope with this virus and to recover. Then, Lord, we thank you for Nola. And for the excitement of celebrating her birthday this day, we ask that you might bless her and hear her and grant her the desire of her heart. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we have the opportunity this morning to come together. We pray for those who seek to serve you, whether it's Thomas through baptism or Rianne and Daniel through their acts of commitment, or us, Lord, gathered here this morning to hear and to be changed in mind, in heart, in will. We ask that you might do this for Jesus' sake, that he might receive pleasure and glory through our lives. We pray in his name. Everybody said? Amen. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. I just remembered something that I was told last Sunday, so push the pause on that and I'll, or in fact, erase it. We'll start again in a minute. Uh, Rob and Margaret Humphreys are with us today, and then this is their last Sunday for two and a half months, something like that, travelling west. So we need to farewell and pray for Rob. 
uh, and for Margaret. You guys are going over for a family function, a family reason, and trust that it'll be a, a lovely time. Okay, so excuse me for forgetting that, but I want to pray for those guys right now, otherwise they'll belt me at the end of the service. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, there are many people, Brian and Maureen as well, uh, and others who plan trips, but for Rob and for Margaret, Lord, uh, we thank you for them and for their fellowship, for their involvement in the life of our church. We pray that you'll give them a great time in travel, in fellowship together, and in connecting with their family. May, Lord, most of all, through this time away, may they have a very real sense of your presence and of sweet fellowship with you. And then, Lord, we ask that you'll be pleased to bring them home safely. And everybody said, until I forget something else, and then I'll pray for that. <clears throat> What's the greatest commandment? Love God with everything. That's ultimately what is our primary duty. In fact, Jesus takes it up a notch, if you like, or he clarifies it by saying that we are to love God first and primarily, above and beyond everyone and everything else. He even uses stark language like, if you love uh, mother, father, brother, sister, wife more than me, you are not worthy of me. He ups the ante of saying, the Lord and our relationship with him, he is to be number one, his primary, preeminent. He is to be the focus. And this passage illustrates that truth for us. It's important for us to get the background to it, that even, in fact, if we can, to maybe feel a little bit of it. The book of Joshua, when we come to chapter 22 and the remaining two chapters is now in the application section. The person who wrote the book, Joshua wrote most of it, but somebody has obviously edited it after him and added a few things and reflected upon the history of it. Either way, it's inspired by God and it's his word to us. And the author can see something coming on the horizon. Joshua probably had an insight into it. And the book of Joshua is written um, 20, 30, 40 years, something like that, uh, after, the after the death of Joshua Something is going on. And over in chapter 24, verse 31, the author writes, Israel served the Lord all of the days of Joshua and all of the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all of the work that the Lord had done for Israel. Israel served the Lord. They were faithful all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua. Israel served the Lord, but something's coming. Is coming a time, and it'll be in the book of Judges, where that statement will no longer be true. And it's sad. So the author at the end of the book of Joshua is giving us three chapters of application. This is like the Romans 12 verse 1 statement. After all of the arguing and the theology and the reasoning, you get to Romans 12 verse 1, and the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, in view of God's mercies and what he has done for us through the person of the Lord Jesus, let's commit ourselves to him as living sacrifices. This is Joshua 22. In view of all that God has done for us, we have entered the land, we have conquered it, we now possess it and own it. Therefore, let us commit ourselves to being faithful to him. The first 10 verses of chapter 22 is about that sort of admonition that Joshua gives to the two and a half tribes who very sadly eight, nine, ten years before this with Moses had said uh, we don't want to cross the Jordan can we settle down here can we have this land it was expedient it would be peaceful they wanted to keep their stuff they didn't want to go and fight <clears throat> but Moses you know the story Moses said well okay you can live on that side of the Jordan but 
um, your fighting men are going to have to come and help us finish the job and then you can return. Well, they were true to their word. They had kept their promise. The men had gone. And in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 22, you have Joshua now dismissing those troops from those two and a half tribes, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. And he says in verse 2, You have observed all that Moses, servant of the Lord, commanded you. You have obeyed me as I had commanded you. You haven't forsaken your fellow Israelites. Um, you've kept the charge. And now the Lord your God finished the job and he's given you rest. It's now a time of peace. Can you hear me? The volume on this has changed. Put up your hand if you can hear me clearly. Oh, I didn't have a good night's sleep last night, so if I go to sleep during this talk, just wake me up. (laughs) Verse 4 says, And now the Lord your God has given you rest to your kindred, uh, as he promised them. Now, therefore, you can return. You can go. Return to your homes. Verse 5, he charges them. And what he says to them is also true for us as we seek to follow the Lord Jesus. Take good care to observe the commandments and the instructions that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. Be passionate followers of the living God, of the Lord Jesus. Follow him. Don't give up. Don't depart to the right or to the left. Don't back off. Serve him with everything you've got. He admonishes them. And then he blesses them in verse 6. And in verse 8 he sends them back. Go now and take with you the wealth, uh, livestock and silver, gold, bronze, iron and with a great quantity of clothing and share it amongst your families back home. And off they went. These guys had fought for about seven years, Bible scholars calculate, That's a long time to fight, isn't it? That's longer than either of the world wars that people went through. They would have forged relationships, developed close mateship. They listened to each other. They shared stories together. They fought together. They would have supported, protected, saved all together for seven years. Now at the end of the seven years, it's time for them to return home. It was time for them to say farewell. And Francis Schaeffer, I think, is correct when he says this would have been an emotional parting. There was a sense of relief. We can lay down our weapons. We can return to our families and loved ones. There would have been joy and expectation as they headed home. But there's also a sense of sadness and loss that we're parting company, that we're not going to see each other as much as we have. And so off they went. We ought to have a sense and feel that as they went. And then in their trip home, as they're going home, it suddenly, done about suddenly, it occurs to them What's it going to be like in the future? We're living across the Jordan. And this is the land that God had promised. God has given us that land too. But that Jordan Rift Valley is a significant boundary. What happens in the future if the kids on this side, the next generation, say to our next generation, you don't belong to us. God's put a big dividing line between us and you're on that side. You don't belong. You can't come. You can't worship. And they must have panicked. Their concern was that they wanted to have some means of identification and they came up with a solution. Their solution was, let's build a huge altar, a replica of the altar which is in the tabernacle at Shiloh, make it exactly the same but massive. 
And then when the next generation says that we don't belong, we can say, look at that. We built that. It's a duplicate copy because we do belong. Now just pause and think about that for the moment because we still do it these days. That we try to come up with some artificial means, some artificial um, memorial or replica to indicate we belong to God. How do people do that these days? How do people take something physical and it indicates I belong to God? Some people put little wristbands on with four letters on it. Some people wear a around their neck. Some people have bumper stickers on their cars. Some people have photos in their home. Anything wrong with those things? Not necessarily. But when those things become a substitute for what it's supposed to be, in other words, when we do that, instead of living the life, of our life being the indication that we belong to God, when we build memorials to say, see, we belong, it wasn't necessary. God had already put in place two things. Number one, three annual feasts that all of the heads of the families of all of the tribes were to come to celebrate together. If they had been faithful in attending those feasts, it would have been very obvious you belong to us. Secondly, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God had instructed all of the parents to teach all of the children about God's commandments, God's ways and following him. If their parents would be committed to doing that, then it wasn't necessary to have a memorial. Their lifestyle and their worship, their attendance at the feast would have demonstrated that they belong. It wasn't necessary, but they were concerned. And sometimes we may do a similar thing. It's understandable. What they did may have not been helpful, but why they did it was a good reason. They still wanted to belong. And so one day in the story... Uh, as it moves along, they've built the altar, they've gone home, and these other ten and a half, nine and a half tribes have gone back to their things, and then one day, the story is passed around. Something terrible, has, something unexpected, something unbelievable has happened, that the eastern tribes have built another altar, a different one, a massive one, and it's wrong. There already was an altar in Shiloh, at the tabernacle where it was erected. There could only be one altar, not two. One altar, one faith, one people. This must surely mean that the two and a half tribes have abandoned their faith. They have come up with an alternative. They have, they're apostate. They're departing from the ways of God. They are being disloyal. And God had said very clearly... When you go into the promised land, destroy every altar, remove every idol. And now the two and a half tribes have gone and built another altar. They're lining themselves up for extinction. And Israel's response, verses 11 and 12, the Israelites heard that two and a half tribes had built an altar on the frontier near the Jordan, on this side. In verse 12, when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. This is their mates. This is their comrades in arms. For seven years they had journeyed together. But they perceived that they had done something spiritually disastrous. And so what appears, what could be misunderstood as um, religion makes us fight one another... There's another dimension or perspective which is Israel was zealous for the truth of God and they were prepared to take up weapons and arms 
against friends for the honour of God. They love the two and a half tribes, but they love God more. And that's what God calls us to, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. They must have been sick of war, they must have been sick of carrying weapons and all the rest of it, and they rejoiced in the peace. But when they heard that this spiritual thing had happened, they readily took up weapons again. This is not right. We have to do something. We just can't accept it. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? But it's necessary. And it was very necessary for Israel to be clear and unyielding on the essentials. There is a place for us as followers of the Lord Jesus, for us to say, okay, let's agree to disagree. You think that, I think this. You do that, I do this. They're different. On some things that's quite acceptable, but it's also on some things that's not acceptable. There is a place for this is right, that's wrong. And because you are doing that which is wrong, therefore there has to be consequences. There has to be a dividing of the way. There has to be a separation. There has to be away from me. I can't allow you to influence me. So Israel gathers. They then very wisely, very fairly, and we can learn lessons from this that when we get into conflict, is they send a delegation. They take one of the high priests, not the high priest, the son of the high priest, Phineas, and they gather ten men, one from each of the tribes on this side, ten significant leaders, And they form a delegation and they go off to approach the two and a half tribes and to talk about what is this thing that you have done. And note this, they say what concerns them. They are very clear. In verses 16, 17 and 18, they call it what they understand it to be. They call it a trespass. They say you have broken away, you have turned aside, you have rebelled. You are no longer following God's ways. They cite two historical cases. Numbers 25, the sin of Peor, where Baal, the prophet, had come down and deceived Israel. And their point is, when Baal tricked some of them, all of us suffered together. Second case they cite in verse 20 is Achan. And when he did that which he shouldn't in Joshua Joshua chapter 7, 36 men lost their lives, but also when he was found out, he and his family and loved ones lost their lives as well. When we sin... It's not just us who pays the consequences. That's the point. Um, there is no long, it's not just a we follow God individually, but when we follow God, we join him in his community. The disobedience of one has consequences of suffering for the many. I wonder if we believe that we suffer if a few others mess up. If we do believe, if we do understand that, then it will certainly raise the sense of zealousness for the honour of God amongst us. Not to make us harsh judges, but passionate followers, concerned for God and his honour. It may seem unfair to us as Westerners. If he messes up, he should get punished, job done. Not, if he messes up, we suffer with him. That doesn't seem fair to us. But in the Bible and in God's economy, there is a sense of community. When one messes up, we suffer because we are one body. We are connected and committed to each other. That's what this passage is demonstrating. 
these nine and a half tribes are dealing with the two and a half tribes because they are part of the community. They don't just tolerate it. They don't just ignore it. They respond to it. We as a church live under the kingship of the Lord Jesus and it's not doing that which we necessarily like. It's rather being driven by doing that which he likes, that which he requires. So they talk to them. They're very clear. They're hurt and they're offended and they're listening for why have you done this? They even give them an out in verse 19. They say, if it's too difficult for you to live over there, come and live with us. Come and share our land. Costly love. And they listen to them. Basically they're saying, you've made a mistake. How can we fix it? That's that you did it, but we are connected. We are in this with you. It's not just punishment. It's trying to resolve the situation. And then they listened very carefully to their reply. And the reply is an honest and a clarifying one, where the two and a half tribes say, uh, this is correct, verses 22 and 23. If we had rebelled, if what you're saying was true, then you should wipe us out because we've been disloyal to God. If we have turned aside from following Yahweh, then he will call us to account. But we did this because we're concerned about future generations, that your kids would say to our kids that we don't belong, that we would not be allowed to cross the Jordan to come and worship. This altar that we have built is not a functioning altar. It's not built for sacrifices. This altar that we've built is a memorial. This is the eighth memorial in the book of Joshua. This is a memorial symbol, symbolising not division but unity that we are committed to and we want to be part of what God is doing with the people of Israel. What they did was wrong. Why they did it is okay. And they could have done it better in many different levels. But the people, the delegation, were greatly relieved, having spoken the truth clearly, firmly, having heard the explanation. They were greatly relieved and they returned to give a report. It all ended well. And it ended well because both parties were committed in their hearts to being doing what God wanted, so too for us. And it ended well because those people who were prepared to act for God and on God's, in God's name and for his honour, they were prepared to find out the facts before they acted. They sought to clarify their understanding. It could have been a mess. It could have been ugly. They could have acted rashly, suddenly. They could have just gone and invaded them and wiped them out. But because they talked openly and clearly, without compromise, there was a reconciliation. There was an understanding and a restoration. This is our one duty as well, to show the reality of God in our life as we follow Jesus in this rebellious world. To be like the children of Israel here, to be prepared to take a stand and to fight, but to be very clear in what we're fighting against. Not to be rude, but to be firm. Not to compromise, but to be very committed to doing what God wants us to do. You can certainly use this passage in terms of application for us to talk about how to handle conflict. There are certainly some key lessons. When you hear something is going on in somebody else's life, don't just put your hands in your pockets and ignore it. Clarify it. Be very clear. Reason with them. Outline the implications if this is true and listen. 
It's amazing how many rumours fly around this world, in churches but in all organisations, wherever there are people. People see something and they draw a conclusion but it's not correct, but they're convinced it's correct. So this passage outlines for us how to handle conflict, that's certainly true, and then respond accordingly. That's not the main point of the passage. Those lessons are there. The main point of this passage, I think, is the application to the children of Israel and to us to be zealous for God, to follow him and his ways, to be faithful to all that he requires, regardless of the cost. For Israel, the cost could have meant we have to remove two and a half tribes, but they were prepared to do it. Zeal for God, commitment to him, living for God's approval. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says that, Paul says, I make it my ambition to please him. I make it my ambition to please him. That ought to be the top of our ambition list. Whatever our career, whatever our goals, whatever our ambitions, number one, please him, honour him. That's what Jesus did and that's for whom the one we are to follow. This author, as I have indicated of Joshua, sees something on the horizon, sees trouble coming, that Israel has been united, has been faithful, has been successful. Excuse me, they've achieved the mission that God gave them to do. And now their response has to be one of very clear focus to endure. Sometimes in war it's easy to have a focus. The enemy is there and we're united. What about in times of peace? What about when it's easy? What about in, for us, like now, in our world, where it's relatively easy and comfortable to follow Jesus and there's not a great deal of tension? Francis Chan wrote a book called The Forgotten God and in it uh, he talks about the story of 13 Christians who were arrested, kidnapped by the Taliban. And when they were arrested, their Bibles were taken off them except they managed to rip a couple of pages out of the New Testament somewhere and that's all they had. And they were under this arrest. They didn't know if they were going to be executed or what was going to happen to them. So they decided to rip up the little bits of the New Testament pages they had into little bits so that each of them, all 13, had a little bit of scripture which they could read, which they could find encouragement from. And they all tell the story of this amazing sense of the presence of God with them, God sustaining them. And they all had this sold-out commitment. If I lose my life here because I follow Jesus, then so be it. They went backing away. The story unfolds that eventually they got released They returned to their homes. Months passed. And they had a different sense. They became more comfortable. They lost that sense of uh, zealousness and focus and thing because what was driving them together was now removed. And it's very easy in an affluent world to be so easily distracted, isn't it? That's what happened to them. And they contacted each other and they said, don't you wish that we could be back in that prison under the Taliban arrest for that sense of God's closeness? and a desire to passionately please him. That's one of the points of this passage. The author sees this coming. Now, hard times are changing. It's now going to be a lot easier. Will we follow God in the easy times, the author is saying. And the other part that comes out of this passage is that when God saves us, calls us to follow him, he calls us into community. When we come to the Lord Jesus, when we are saved and forgiven when we receive his spirit, when we read our Bible and learn how to pray, and we also enter into fellowship. 
we engage in a church and gather together for worship. We learn how to give. We learn how to serve. We read and we learn about witnessing and supporting missions and we're growing as we follow the Lord Jesus. One of the dimensions of following the Lord Jesus is that it's a corporate dimension, not just individual. Ephesians 2.19 says that as members of God's family, we belong in God's household with every other believer. Ephesians 2.19 is saying the church is God's family. Number two, that God expects believers to belong to God's family. And number three, therefore, a believer without a church family is a contradiction. This passage is saying the same thing. When we commit to following God, we are committed to the community. We line ourselves up with one another. What happens in your life is to affect me. What happens in my life is to affect you because we are bound together. Church is not following Jesus Monday to Saturday and then on Sunday I come with a gathering of people whom I'm relatively comfortable with. Some of them I'm very close to and many I don't know. And then at the end of that service I go home again and I live my life my way. That's not what church is about. Church is about being followers of God in community with one another, entering in where we can challenge, encourage, support and, where necessary, call each other to account, where we're not doing that which is right or not speaking as, a, as we ought to be. We are to influence one another and to be influenced by one another <coughs> as we seek to follow him. This passage, Joshua 22, is a challenge to us to be zealous for God and his ways and therefore committed to his people and encouraging them likewise to join you as you seek to follow the Lord 100% fully with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you set the model and the standard for us when you came into our world, that you didn't grasp to yourself your rights, your privileges, but you emptied yourself, was fully obedient to God's call on your life, and that you came into this world and you were fully obedient in it, even to the point of death on a cross. God was pleased with all that you did. The Father, the Spirit raises you, exalts you. And now, Lord Jesus, you call us to follow you, to have this same attitude, to be zealous in pleasing you, to be completely committed, to be passionate followers, and to do that not just as a solo, but to do that in community. So, Lord, help us to be passionate followers together, zealous for the honour of your name, gracious but firm, clear and committed. We ask this for your honour and because it will please you. And, Lord, that's our ambition, your approval. We pray in your name. Amen.